0: 2 Kings. There's also a sermon notes page for you in that little bulletin that you should have picked up the way in this morning. And uh, on that is a quick little sum uh, summary of the message this morning, and then an outline. We're not going to go through all that uh, material, but this is for you to go back and read uh, Second Kings because we're in a little series—not uh, so little really—going uh, through the whole Bible. And uh, this morning we're going to focus our hearts and minds on Second Kings. You ready? Second Kings. Okay. So. If there are two books in the Bible that usually people get bogged down in for uh, their Bible reading plans, usually Leviticus, that one comes quick and uh, it hits hard. <laughs> you read Leviticus and you get depressed and you, and you stop reading, you stumble, and maybe you uh, go on to Numbers and the story of the Israelites out in the wilderness, and then uh, you finally get into some more exciting stuff, and then 2 Kings. It's really, really depressing. Uh, it's really, really depressing and down. So, 2 Kings. This morning, 2 Kings, from Exodus to exile. That's going to be our, the big idea. From Exodus to exile. Now, children, I asked you last Sunday, uh, and maybe you can remember that far back. I, I hope you can. I asked you last Sunday, what's a kingdom? What's a kingdom? So we're reading the book of, or we're in the book of First Kings. But what is a kingdom? Remember what I said last Sunday, or what you said last Sunday? What you wrote down? Okay. What's a kingdom? A kingdom is What? A king's people and the oldest kid in the building said it. Okay? I'm not even going to look over there, Larry. Okay? People and place, okay? A kingdom's people and place. So the Israelites, in this case, have Israel in the north, and then you have Judah down in the south because the kingdom has been divided. Uh, and the place. What's the place of the king's kingdom? What's the place? So the people, Israel and Judah, but what's the place? Kids, where are the Israelites living? The promised land. Good. Okay. The promised land. Right? Good job, Leon. Isn't it your your birthday today? Or no? Tomorrow. Okay. Tomorrow. All right. Good stuff. Good stuff. So a kingdom is a king's people and place. Now, the Lord is king. We've been seeing that. The Lord is king. And as we turn our hearts and minds to second kings, we are... Uh, going to continue to learn about this divided kingdom. Remember, David the fir- uh, Saul the first king. David, though the first king after God's own heart in the line of Judah, as God had promised to, uh, to to the tribe of Judah way back when in Genesis 49. Uh, but David died. The son Solomon took over as king. Solomon died. The kingdom was divided between his son Rehoboam in the south, Judah, and then uh, one of his servants uh, Jeroboam in the north. In what was called then Israel. So the kingdom has been divided. And our title here, again, the the big idea really to kind of summarize 2 Kings is From Exodus to Exile. From Exodus to Exile. Why? Because if you turn to chapter 17 at verse number 7, this gives us a good little summary of of the whole book. Uh, In chapter 17 at verse number 7, the Lord connects the coming exile of the northern kingdom of Israel, he connects that exile all the way back to the Exodus. Notice in chapter 17 at verse 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel, this is the north, remember, the north, they had sinned against the Lord their God. But then notice how the writer describes the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. That's the Exodus, isn't it? from under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And notice, then he also adds this, just to kind of like drive the nail in, and had feared other gods. So why were they going to be exiled? Because they abandoned, they sinned against the Lord their God, they feared other gods instead of the Lord, the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. So the Exodus, that God is now going to exile them for their sins. Now, turn to chapter 21 at verse 15. So these, just these two quick verses that give us kind of the big idea here. Chapter 21 at verse number 15. Now, now the Lord is speaking through, through uh, the prophets to the southern kingdom of Judah. And we see a very similar thing. That the southern kingdom is also going to go out into exile. Verse 15. Because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger. And then notice this, since the day their fathers came out of Egypt. What's that again? The Exodus, okay, the Exodus. So Exodus, now to exile. So really, we can go from Genesis to 2 Kings, and it's all like one big package, right? Uh, Or or Exodus uh, to 2 Kings. God redeems us, he's made them, but he also redeems his people, and now he's going to discipline them in exile why because as the story goes over the course of many generations israel's and judah's grip on the lord alone lessened they feared other gods they their grip on the lord lessened became weaker and weaker as they clung to other gods more and more strongly their grip on the lord became weaker and we talk about faith as being like a hand don't we sometimes faith is like a hand that grasps and reaches out and holds on to jesus and all that he's done for us but the problem is what kings second kings is showing us we've seen it really in the whole the testament so far is that when we as the people of god try to serve god and fill in the blank you can't serve god and mammon right you can't serve god and money you can't serve two masters jesus said the problem though, of the Old Testament was, and this is a lesson for us, is that when we try to serve God and we grab hold of him with a hand of faith, but then we want to hold in our other hand something else, ourselves, really, our, our idols. We try to grasp onto both of those things, the Lord and whatever it is, really ourselves. The problem is over time, our grip on that one thing, the idol, becomes even more strong and the grip on the Lord Jesus Christ gets less. That's what we see here in the story of the kings. You can't serve two masters, you can only serve the Lord. They tried to grasp onto all these idols and they did and eventually it led them to their demise. And so grab hold of Christ, right? That's one of the big lessons of the kings. Grab hold of the gospel, the good news of the Lord for your soul. And if you're here this morning you've never heard of Jesus or you're not quite sure about him, that's the big message of the whole Bible. Grab hold of Jesus Christ while it is the day of salvation and lessen your grip on everything else, especially yourself. Grab hold of Christ. And I hope you'll see that and hear that this morning. Now, last week I said the big theme of 1 Kings was the faithfulness of the Lord in the history of Israel's kings despite their, the kings, increasing unfaithfulness. So God's faithfulness despite Israel's unfaithfulness. 2 Kings, though, the big theme, theme is this the justice of the Lord in the history of Israel's kings because of their increasing unfaithfulness. Don't ever forget God. We often hear from the culture and even sadly from many Christians, God is love and that's all they want to know about God. God is a God who is faithful and a God who is full of love and mercy and compassion and patience and grace and forgiveness. But He's also a God of justice who... Will execute justice because he must he's god so we see that here uh, so let's go first of all to chapters one to eight just quickly uh, the transition from elijah the prophet elijah that began in chapter 17 of one kings and then all the way through second chapter here of second uh, kings the transition from elijah the prophet to elisha he, uh, the prophet his uh, successor and elijah has been doing battle spiritual battle against king ahab and Queen, Queen Jezebel. Why? Why has he been battling against Ahab and Jezebel? What was wrong with the reign of Ahab and his Queen Jezebel? I mean, we even, I said last Sunday, we even, we even use the, the name Jezebel as like a quick little summary to say something bad about somebody, right? So what was wrong with the, the reign of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel? What did they do wrong? They served idols, right? And they were really unjust. I didn't look, we didn't look last Sunday at Naboth's Vineyard, but that's a story of injustice. So it's not just that they served the wrong God, but by doing that, that affected how they treated one another. Love God and love neighbor, right? Those are the two great commandments. When you serve false gods, you end up serving yourself, which means you're going to live in an unjust way towards God. Uh, your neighbor, and so Elijah is continuing here in chapter one. He's he's doing spiritual battle against now King Ahaziah, and uh, on three occasions Ahaziah sends uh, these messengers to Elijah, and just like he had done on Mount Carmel, he sends down fire out of heaven to consume them. That's 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 what happens in chapter one. Then in chapter two, he's taken up into heaven. And there's that wonderful and amazing image of of those chariots of fire that come and swoop in and take up Elijah into heaven. But before that happens in chapter 2, Elijah takes off his cloak, he rolls it up, and they're at the Jordan River, and Elisha says, before you leave, give me a double measure of your blessing. Give me a double measure of your blessing. That's what happened. Elijah does all these miracles, and Elijah does a lot of miracles too, but he wants a double portion, a double blessing of Elijah's spirit, he says, this this prophetic spirit, really the Holy Spirit. And how do we know that Elisha actually received a double portion of Elijah's spirit? How do we know that? How many more miracles did Elisha, so think about this, again, Larry, was the ma- Larry sent me an email this week doing the math from last Sunday, and I was right, I was right last Sunday on my math, okay, my on-the-fly math. So if Elijah did X miracles, and Elisha asked for a double portion of uh, the Holy Spirit, and then he goes on and does miracles, how many miracles do you think Elisha did? Two times, right? Twice twice so if you go and read the story of Elijah and you add up the miracles and then you're going to read the story of Elisha and add up the miracles there are different ways in which the miracles are added up uh, some things are not really considered miracles but if you do that I'm pretty confident that you're going to say wow that's pretty cool there were seven miracles done by Elijah and there are 14 done by Elisha. so the proof's in the pudding as we say right uh, so he does all these miracles. And that's in chapter 3 through 6. All these miracles of Elijah. It's really amazing how they're compacted into just a couple of chapters. It's like miracle after miracle after miracle, just to impress upon us that he received a double portion of Elisha's spirit. So in chapters 1 to 8, then, just to conclude uh, that first point quickly, uh, we see a transition from the ministry of the prophet Elijah to his successor Elisha, who receives, as chapter 2 9 says, a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Uh, And there's a lesson there for us. It's not just this great sort of battle between God and the Lord and and, uh, adding up all these numbers of miracles and so forth. But but there's a lesson there for us. Uh, And the lesson is this, and it connects to what I've been saying throughout uh, these sermons so far, is that throughout the Old Testament, we've seen this time and time again. And and I'm pretty sure you remember this, because I've said it a million million times already. But each generation, we learn this in the Old Testament, each generation of the Old Testament people of God what what was, was responsible to embrace and receive by the hand of faith, to embrace the Lord afresh for themselves, right? We saw that. So the Exodus generation went out of the wilderness, and they were unfaithful. But all those children and grandchildren born in the wilderness, they were the ones who, with faith, Receive and embrace the Lord. And they're the ones who conquered in the book of Joshua. The problem was they were too busy conquering to teach their children the faith, we might say, so that the next generation, the generation that led into the time of the judges, they didn't believe. And so there's always this great tension between God blesses his people collectively. We call it the covenant. But everyone still needs to believe for themselves. We see that here with Elijah and Elisha. There's something in Elisha's double portion for not just him, but the people of God then, but also for us. In one of our hymns, we pray uh, this prayer. God of the prophets, bless the prophets' sons. This is a a prayer that we usually pray in in a song form uh, at ordinations of ministers. So God of the prophets, bless the prophets' sons. Elijah's mantle, that's that cloak he wore, Or Elisha cast, and then here's the application in that hymn, each age, its solemn task, may claim but once. Make each one, each generation, nobler, stronger than the last. Not only does each successive generation need to embrace the Lord afresh for itself but each generation of Christians and believers in the church needs to go out in faith, in the anointing of their fathers and their mothers with more strength, right? With more fights against the enemies that await them. So children, you have a big task ahead of you. You have to trust the Lord Jesus Christ and believe all the things that your parents teach you from the scriptures, but then go out. Go out and with great faith, trust the Lord that he's going to use you when you are as old as your parents. You can't even imagine that right now. When you are as old as your mom and dad, you can't even imagine that. But you are called by God to go out in faith, double faith, to fight double fights. Secondly, we see here the road to exile. So we have the, the transition from Elijah to Elisha. But then in chapters 9 through 17, we're on the road to exile. And, and the chapters alternate between Israel and Judah, the north and the south. But I'm just going to focus on this point uh, on the north. So, chapter 7, uh, 19 to 17. The Road to Exile in the North. Uh, And it all begins with King Jehu. Uh, Elisha sent one of the sons of the prophets to anoint Jehu as king. That's in chapter 9. And then Jehu leads this great revolution against all the former regimes that had, had been up to that point leading the nation, the kingdom of the North, of Israel. And so he assassinates. He goes on this assassination run uh, he assassinates Joram and Ahaziah and even Queen Jezebel herself. Ahab's descendants, King Ahab's descendants. He wipes out his family line, as the prophet said would happen. Uh, he wipes out Ahaziah's descendants. He sort of spins out of control, it feels like. You should read the story. And he even goes after the prophets of Baal. So he's wiping out everybody. He's wiping out everybody. Now, he's doing it on behalf of the Lord. He's executing divine justice. God, the Lord, was executing divine justice through King Jehu. But the problem is, when God uses the Holy God uses sinful people, what do you think happens? Unfortunately, God has to use. God has chosen to use us. Right? He's chosen to use us sinners of all people. He doesn't, he doesn't choose to use uh, sinless, perfect human beings because there are none. The problem is that he has to use sinful, you know, idolatry-serving, love, self-loving people. And so Jehu does things that are, on the one hand, executing divine justice, but he also doesn't, we're told in the story here, chapters 9 and 10, he doesn't remove the golden calves that Jeroboam set up. Remember, he built two golden calves. And he was not careful to walk according to the law of the Lord. So it kind of starts out with a bang and it ends up with a whimper, his his kingdom. You know, he's going out and he's executing justice against all these false kings and all the idolatry that they brought into the people of God's lives. And it looks like for the the first time, the northern kingdom is going to have a king after God's own heart, but he did not walk in all the laws of the Lord. He wasn't careful to do that. He didn't remove the golden cows, the golden calves. He served idols too. Now, one big theological point, I don't think I've really touched on this too much so far, but it's come up a bunch uh, in in the stories, especially of Joshua and Judges and now the Kings. Uh, And I thought about this week because I was uh, was helping uh, uh, Cyprian with, uh, he's taking a class this semester on biblical narratives. And uh, one of the questions that he was asked was, what was his view of the Lord's use of violence? as a remedy for other violence in the Bible. So the Bible, people kill people, right? But then God says at times to use violence against the violent. And we see that here. Ahab and his injustices and all of his murderous plots and all these false kings and and all these uh, queens. And then God tells Jehu to go execute justice by doing violent things. So how do we make sense of God being so violent? in the Old Testament. Well, I mentioned just a few moments ago, God is just and righteous. His justice is rendering verdicts that set things right, that have gone awry, that have gone astray. So that's what justice is, it's rendering verdicts to set things right. His righteousness is his acting on behalf of his people in the midst of the injustice that they experience. So. The Israelites cry out to God in the midst of injustice in Egypt, and God, the righteous God, acts for them. That's righteousness. And he does so by setting things right, by executing justice upon their gods and upon the household of Pharaoh. And so all these kings and all these queens of the north and all these people had acted unjustly toward the Lord, uh, towards the Lord's uh, remnants, remember how many, how many people were left who didn't serve the, the gods, according to the Lord, when he told Elijah. When Elijah had his pity party, that he was the only one left who served the Lord. What did the Lord say? 7,000, right? 7,000. But those 7,000, that remnant, had been experiencing injustice by the kings and queens and people of Israel. And so the Lord then acts righteously towards his people by setting things right using justice. And that's not hard for us to grasp, because that's really what heaven and hell are all about, right? That's what heaven and hell are all about. It's God who has set all things right, the righteous God who acts on behalf of his people, uh, and hell is just that. It's God setting things right, and God uh, who executes his just, uh, his just reign. Now, there's a great list there, chapters 13 to 17. I uh, just listed them off there uh, on the, on the, uh, the outline. All these kings, and some of them, their names get changed, and so you can kind of follow that if you read that in chapters 13 to 17. Uh, and these kings reign anywhere between one month and 20 years. So it's, they vary in their reigns. But there's a common refrain with every single king in the north. What's that common refrain? What's the common thing that you read in the story of the kings in the north? The one thing that's said about all of them. It's always the same thing. He did what was evil in the sight of of the Lord. Note that uh, in the time of Jeroboam II, there are two Jeroboams, chapter 14 at verse 23 to 29. Uh, just note this. This is kind of like a little foreshadowing for, uh, for, for where we're going to go, but you see there the prophet Jonah is mentioned in verse 25, chapter 14, verse 25. The prophet Jonah is mentioned there in the reign of Jeroboam II. Uh, it just reminds that the Old Testament is <clears throat> not written or it's not ordered in a chronological way because we come to the end of Second Kings and there are all kinds of prophets that are mentioned and they're not listed in our Bibles. They're not, uh, they don't come up until later on, so we can't just expect and imagine that we read the books of the Bible in their order. That's the chronological order. So, uh, Lord willing, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll continue our series uh, next Sunday uh, with Jonah because we're going to come back into these kings. I'm going to show you how the prophets fit. Uh, into the line of the various kings of the north and the south. But this line is just a line of continuing downward spiral until the fall and exile uh, of the north to the Assyrians. And that's what chapter 17 is all about. It's a big high point, low point, really, uh, in the story of God's dealing. The fall and the exile of the northern kingdom of Israel, chapter 17. Uh, king, the king was Hosea, Uh, And he dealt treacherously with Salmanessar, who was king of Assyria. Chapter 17, verse 4. And so the king of Assyria bound uh, bound him and imprisoned him, and that led to Assyria's invasion of the Promised Land and the fall of the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. So a key date in Old Testament history, 722 B.C. That's the account here. That's when this is happening. So 722 B.C. uh, is the fall of the northern kingdom. Notice verse 6, it mentions the fall of Samaria. Samaria is the capital city of the north. Uh, Later on in our Bibles, we read the New Testament. When Jesus walks the earth, Samaria is a region. So at this point, Samaria is the capital city. Uh, Later on, Samaria becomes a region of of the promised land. Uh, So just keep that in mind. So verse 6 mentions the fall of the capital city. Samaria, the, the, the capital of the north, uh, and that meant carrying away the people of God. They, they were taken exile. They were ca- taken captive from the promised land across the desert, uh, across uh, the fertile crescent into uh, Assyria, and, but notice uh, they weren't settled in the lands of the Assyrians. Notice verse 6. The Assyrians took the northern people, the Israelites, and where do they settle them? Look at verse 6. So the Assyrians came from the north, and north, uh, and they came down south a little bit west, southwest. Uh, and when they took the Israelites captive, where were they settled? Notice verse six, the very end. The land of the Medes. This is a this this the, the later on they would become a kingdom, but at this point this is just a region of the uh, a people over which the Assyrians ruled. And that was one of the Assyrians' uh, strategies and tactics was when they conquered one city or one region, they would take their people captive and they wouldn't take them back to Assyria, they would put them somewhere else. They would take them from the promised land and take them north or take them from the the north and put them south or from the east to the west or from the west to the east. They did that to intermarry them and to sort of breed them out of existence. They caused them to lose their culture uh, and to lose their sense of history. that's what they did here in verse number six that's why the northern kingdom and especially the middle part the Sumerians uh, they were then uh, settled by people from other parts that's why the Samaritans right or the Sumerians uh, became this people that were a mixed uh, group of people the question is why does the north fall look at verses 7 to 23 there of chapter 17 uh, again, verse 7, which we looked at a little bit earlier. This occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. And again, notice how he's mentioned there. He's the God of Exodus, uh, now linked to the exile, uh, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, from under the hand of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Uh, and again, they feared other gods. And that's what chapter 17, verse 8, uh, down to verse number 23, goes on to specify how it was that they feared other gods. Gods. They were guilty, uh, in general speak, of unfaithfulness to God's covenant. But in particular, it was that they served other gods. They were idol worshippers. They were idol worshippers. What was the result of their exile? Look at verse 24. The Assyrians, again, I mentioned this, they had a practice of resettling conquered peoples uh, into other conquered peoples' lands. So the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, uh, Kuthah, ava hamat and sephir and in place in the cities of samaria instead of the people of israel that's why when jesus shows up they have their own temple they have their own mountain uh, they're considered this mixed race and they're considered just untouchable people because they were they were a mix of people from all over the ancient world so in summary then this northern kingdom uh, their road to exile was a long road uh, but it finally came to a head as the Lord had said way back when in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, he had said, if you are unfaithful to my covenant, if you worship other gods, if you fear idols more than me, one of the cur- uh, curses was that you would be sent away out into exile. And so that's happening here. One of the truths revealed here is uh, that's instructive for us uh, is that Israel acted like The other nations around them. Notice how in verses twenty, verse eight uh, and following, in that little section I mentioned, that's chronicling their idolatry, the reason why they were exiled. Look at verse eight. Notice how the Lord is describing, or the the narrator is describing, the reason for their exile. Verse eight: They walked in the customs of the nations. Okay, so circle that, highlight that. Verse eleven again. Tells us that they worshiped as the nations did. Again, verse 15. They followed the nations. Isn't that what the Lord told them? Way back when, when they wanted their own king. The Lord said, don't, you don't want to have a king like the nations. You don't want a king who just hoards up gold and silver. You don't want a king who has a huge standing army. You don't want a king who takes your sons and daughters captive and and conscripts them into his army, uh, into his fields, so on and so forth. You don't want a king like the nations. But that's exactly what they got, because they wanted that. And this is like the, the, the final devolution of their life, was to be like the nations. But the people of God are supposed to be a holy nation, aren't they? Didn't the Lord tell the Israelites in Exodus 19 when he called them out that they were a treasured possession, that they were a holy nation, a kingdom of priests? But here we're seeing that they're unholy. They're an unholy nation. They're like the nations. That's important for us because we learn in the New Testament that we are exhorted in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Peter 2, verse number 9, that we are a holy nation. And therefore, the exhortation is that we are not to be conformed to the world. We are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We are not to be like the world. We are to be in the world, but not of the world, not like the world. We are to be different than the world. Our minds should be different. Our hearts and the things that we love and care about should be different than the world. The things that we serve to be different, the the way that we use our time and our talent, our treasure, should be different. But they were like the nations. They worshiped like the nations. They wanted to be like the nations, and they were like the nations. And so God said, said, do you want to be like the nations? Then you can go and be part of the nations. And he kicked them out of the land. Brothers and sisters, be Christians. Let's be Christians. Let's be the church. Let's be a holy people. Let's be different, not like the nations. We don't need to be like the world. Right? We got the world all around us, All it's in us. We don't need to be like the world. Be like the church, be Christians, be holy, be separate, be different. And then finally, we come to the road to exile in the South. That's how the book ends. Chapters 18 to 25, the book ends there in... The south. And we have a couple of kings mentioned just quickly. Uh, King Hezekiah, he does what is right. Lunas, verse 3 of chapter 18, does what is right, just like, uh, uh, like uh, Father David or King David. Verse 4, he removes idols and false worship, important. Uh, verse 5, he trusted the Lord against the armies of the Syrians who amassed at their borders. Verse 6, he kept the laws of Moses. And verse 7, again, we've seen this theme throughout so far, uh, Genesis all the way now to 2 Kings, verse 7, that the presence of the Lord was with him. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. The presence of God, right? The presence of God. Now, when Sennacherib, who was king of Assyria, came against Judah, remember he had in 722, uh, he had already uh, destroyed, the Assyrians had already destroyed the north and taken them captive. Now he came against the, uh, the Judeans, or those in Judah. Uh, Hezekiah's response was to pay a tribute, verses 15 through 16, lots of silver and gold uh, that was taken out of the temple. Uh, but the Assyrians came back and they wanted more, and they mocked the Lord. And King Hezekiah went to the temple to pray. And the prophet Isaiah just happened to be there. Right? The same prophet Isaiah that saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple, right? That, that, that Isaiah. And Isaiah was there to assure him. And we read Hezekiah's wonderful prayer there in chapter number 19 at uh, verse 15 and following. O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. This sounds exactly like Isaiah's vision in chapter 6 of Isaiah. You are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. So on and so forth. This wonderful prayer of of King Hezekiah. And then Isaiah prophesied Sennacherib was going to fall. That's in chapter number 19, verses 20 to the end. Uh, And then later on, Hezekiah gets sick. He recovers from sickness. Uh, And then a new power had arisen the power of Babylon. And they sent their envoys, and Hezekiah then very sort of braggadociously, he took him into a tour of the temple and showed him all the wealth and and all the treasures of his temple and of his house. And then Isaiah prophesied that, yes, you too, Judah, were also going to be exiled, this time not into Assyria, but to the kingdom of the Babylonians. And then uh, things begin to go downhill in chapter 21 with King Manasseh and Ammon. Uh, they practice like the nations. Look at chapter 21, verse 2. Uh, they engage in idolatry. 21, verse 3. In fact, they put altars to false gods, not just on high places and hills and mountains and on street corners, but they put altars in the temple. Verse 4, verse 5. In the holy place where the Lord said he would place his name. Notice that. God had said way back when to to Moses that he would put his name in the place where where his house would be built. And you see that very same thing here, verse four. He built, Manasseh did, altars in the house, the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem will I put my name, the presence of God. You can't serve God and you can't serve idols. You can't serve two masters. And am on the same, like father, like Son. Then the high priest Hilkiah went to repair the temple on behalf of King Josiah in chapter 22. And lo and behold, in the temple where all these idols had been uh, stood up and all these altars had been built uh, and all these uh, ungodly things were happening, there was there a copy of the law of Moses. Remember back in Deuteronomy 17, the Lord told Moses to tell the Israelites, when you have a king, which was a good thing, just don't have a king like the nations, But when you have a king, one of his his tasks was to copy by his own hand a copy of the law of Moses. Remember that? That was one of the king's duties, to copy the law and meditate upon the law. We don't know for how long, but for for generations, it seems like, that wasn't happening. And this copy of the law was found in the temple, and the high priest Hilkiah takes it to Josiah and all of his servants, and they are so uh, overwhelmed that they They clothe themselves in sackcloth. They place ashes upon their head. They repent. And there's this great revival of uh, of religion in the time of Josiah, chapter 22 uh, and 23, uh, but Judah had already been condemned. Judah had already been told that they were going to go into exile. So there was a temporary reprieve, a temporary revival. The Lord brought salvation, but then it went downhill for them too. The final list of kings are also mentioned there, ending up with Zedekiah. Mataniah, but he's renamed Zedekiah. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, imprisons one of the kings, Jehoiakim, in chapter 24. And the Lord, notice, notice in chapter 24, verse 1, 2, and 3, the Lord sent, notice the strong language, the Lord sent various raiding parties against judah to destroy it according to the word of the lord surely this came upon judah at the command of the lord god is god right god is the king and then jehoiakim became king but just for a short three months in chapter 24 verse 8 nebuchadnezzar besieged jerusalem He pillaged the temple, chapter 24 describes. He carried away all the officials, all the mighty men, all the craftsmen, all the smiths. He only left behind the poor. That happened in 597 BC, the first carrying away of Jewish exiles. Then in 587 or 586, depending on Jewish or Babylonian sources, Nebuchadnezzar sent his army again. This time the whole thing came. The whole enchilada came up against uh, Jerusalem. They they, they besieged it for 18 months. Chapter 25, verses 2 and 3. The temple was burned down. The king's house was burned down. All the houses in Jerusalem were burned down. Verse 10, the walls were destroyed. Those are the walls that eventually, right, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah talks about. We'll come to that. And they carried off whatever was left in the temple. Verses 13 to the end. Verse 21. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. So from Exodus to exile, the north first in 722, the south second, and first of all in 597, and then eventually 586 was the final straw. Now, I want you to see just quickly, uh, as we conclude, just look, notice the end. I'm going to just mention this quickly, but notice the end of the story. It ends really strangely. It ends with the former king of Judah, Jehoiachin, the descendants Of King David, he's in exile. He's the captive of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. But at some point, a new king arose and we find the king, the former king of Judah, the line of David, sitting at the king of Babylon's table eating food. It's a strange, strange ending. And the point of it is, to, to cause in the mind of the reader, the ancient reader, and for us, was that Davidic line going to just die there at a table in Babylon? I mean, God had promised the Father, uh, to King David, that he was going to have a son upon his throne forever, right? 2 Samuel 7. You'll have a king upon that throne, a son on that throne forever. But here's the king, here's David's line, Jehoiachin in Babylon, eating at a table. Is he going to die there? Or would that line of kings return to the promised land? When? How? And that's what all the prophets are about, which we'll turn to uh, next in our series. Let me conclude with a couple of takeaways from so far in our story. Genesis to 2 Kings. Genesis to 2 Kings, especially Exodus, right? The Exodus to the exile. But a couple of things that we've seen just to press these home and and we'll wrap up. First of all, the Lord is king. The Lord is king. He set up his kingdom in the garden, we saw. We mentioned that last Sunday as well. But Adam and Eve rebelled. Yet he promised a champion seed to crush the serpent's head. To bring that seed to the world, he chose one man, Abram, Abraham. And he promised the father Abraham that kings would come from him. And he promised Abraham's great-grandson, Judah, that his family was the family through which those kings would come. One day Israel rose up and demanded a king, but like the nations, the Lord gave them what they wanted. He gave them King Saul. He looked the part, and he was tall and dark and handsome, but he wasn't from the line of Judah. David was his true king. The Lord chose him as a shepherd boy, unlike Saul. To David, he promised a kingdom and a son to be his heir forever and ever. But Solomon died. If the son of David was supposed to sit on the throne forever, what was going to happen when Solomon died? Well, the kingdom was supposed to be more than just one man, you see. And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, died. In fact, they all died. Even Jehoiachin, who's there in Babylon eating at a table, at the end of our story, they all died. They're exiled, all hoped, or all hope seemed lost. But in all the story, we've got to keep before us That one great thing. Who's the king upon the throne? The Lord. The Lord is king. Secondly, we've seen this. The Lord, the king, is utterly faithful to his promises. Why? Why why is the Lord faithful to his promises? He's faithful to himself. When the Lord says something, his own reputation's on the line. The Lord is faithful to his promises because he is faithful to himself. The devil's temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden, their capitulation, uh, couldn't thwart the Lord. When the world became as bad as it possibly could be in the days of Noah, not even that could thwart the Lord. The Pharaoh in Egypt, the nations out in the wilderness, the nations that invaded the land, the great kingdom of Assyria and the Babylonians could not thwart the Lord. In fact, not even the unfaithfulness of Israel's own people could thwart the Lord's promises, amen? The Lord's king, first of all. The Lord's faithful to his promises, second of all. Third, I've said it multiple times already, I've already mentioned it this morning, but for, what that means for us as a congregation, as families, as couples, as individuals, is that we must cling to the Lord again, and again, and again, right? We must do that. Every generation must experience that revival and reformation Every generation must know the, greatest, uh, the greatness of their sins and their misery and the greatness of the Lord's grace, to sinners just like them. Every generation needs to know that. Every one of our children must repent and believe just like we had to repent and believe. Amen? So every generation has to embrace the Lord. Fourth and finally, we've seen this and we'll conclude here. As all that is going on in our own hearts, all the things that we're reading of in these stories, God is king, the the Lord is king, the Lord is faithful to his promises, we must embrace the Lord. Well, the Lord is working all that stuff in our own hearts. Not, Not just in our own hearts, but amongst us as a people. We, we must spread this news that the Lord Jesus is Messiah of Israel, Savior of the world. He's the resurrected King. He's the utterly faithful God and Savior to unfaithful sinners. He's the only one who can save us humans from the destruction that we've brought upon ourselves in this world because of our sins. Amen? The Lord is king. The Lord is faithful. We have to embrace that for ourselves. And the Lord calls us to share that. Not just for ourselves, but to share that with the lost, that they would know that Jesus reigns and that he is king. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you now that you have given us these wonderful stories up to this point to learn these wonderful truths of who you are uh, and what you have done throughout history for your people. And we pray that you would give us faith, uh, give us strength in our faith, uh, give us great confidence in you. And as we come before the Lord's table this morning, once again, Lord, assure us, And strengthen us that we belong to Jesus Christ, body and soul, both in life and in death. And all of God's people say, amen. Let's turn together in our hymnal as we sing number 245, Great is Thy Faithfulness, 245. uh, We're going to sing there just verses 1 and 3. 245, if you're able to stand, please do, verses 1 and 3.